Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, my colleagues Anusha Kalian and Stephen Bush. On this episode, we talk about Richard Leonard and the fate of Scottish Labour. And you ask us, will the discontent on the Conservative backbenches make a difference in the next few months? And is it more complex than it seems? So Parliament has been back for a few days now and while rows rumble on within the Conservative Party about potential tax rises or cuts in the budget in November, you know, there's some drama over PMQs. Another story that has been developing is what's going on with Scottish Labour. There have been some resignations and calls for their leader Richard Leonard to go ahead of the Scottish parliamentary elections next May. We've had a few questions on that, but Stephen, what's your take on this? Is Richard Leonard going to have to go? I mean, I think with any kind of attempt to remove a Labour leader, I come back to the fundamental rule book driven through it's very difficult to remove a Labour leader who doesn't want to go. He clearly doesn't, therefore he won't. In terms of who his replacement might be, there are obviously lots of kind of contenders that the MSPs might talk about, but I have to be blunt here. I don't know which one of them would do well among the membership because I don't particularly concern myself about the inner life of the third party. I mean, obviously I do with the Lib Dems. So that's because at the start of my career, I remember when all this from Cornwall to Devon was full of Lib Dem MPs, right? That, <laughs> but that was because they, you know, like they, they were in government. And I think there are many, I think, missteps in Richard Leonard's leadership and I think, you know, I would strongly urge everyone to read Rob Ford and, oh God, I've forgotten what Maria's surname is, but there's a new book, Brexit Land, about, well, about Brexit, obviously, but about, you know, kind of British politics. And one of the things in it sets out very interestingly and slightly counterintuitively is that actually, despite the fact that the SNP has successfully won over a kind of lot of, you know, kind of like lefty intellectuals and has successfully, you know, persuaded a lot of people, it has a very sympathetic mood music here in England. One of the strongest predictors for backing independence is a strong support for an ethnocentric account of, of of what it is to be Scottish. Now, that's not true for many, many, many people who vote SNP, but it is a crucially true for some of them. And also crucially, it's true for the Scottish Labour voters who are now backing the SNP. And I think, just as I think it is a huge asset to the Welsh Labour Party, that 
Carwin Jones, Mark Drayford, Rodri Morgan are, were, were and are obviously proudly Welsh. I think it there isn't going to be a, an electoral price, an electoral downside to the fact Richard Leonard is, you know, visibly and visibly English. And I suspect that the full price of that has not yet been paid. And then I think it's, I think politicos always think, okay, we know this is a bit of a problem, but we've paid that in our existing poll share. I think you saw that with the Lib Dems in 2019. They're like, oh, you know, People don't particularly like young women, including, it must be said, quite a lot of other women voters. And that's going to be a problem, but that's baked into our poll share. And it wasn't baked into their poll share. And I think there were things Jo Swinson herself got wrong, but there were there was also that identity-based cost. So I think those are all true criticisms of Richard Leonard. But as with Jo Swinson, do you know who the most important people in the fate of the Scottish Labour Party are in May 2021? Nicola Sturgeon and Douglas Ross, the leader of the first and second party. And I think one of their, the kind of collective problem in that party's culture almost is that they kind of have the mentality, they have, well, they have the mentality of a big club that's become a small club, right? They're like Newcastle Football Club, right? They're continually just like, we should be winning this game easily. And it's just like, why should you be winning this game easily? You're third. And it's not actually clear what their marketplace for expansion looks like. You know, only a kind of sort of like, well, we were a big team once, but, well, who cares? I guess that's kind of my kind of rambly take on the Richard Leonard situation. Yeah, I mean, like you, Stephen, I got into political journalism at a similar time, and, and I know what you mean about the fact that we, we give the Lib Dems the sort of attention that we do because we've seen them operate in government in that way, and it is difficult for a third party to make its voice heard and to align itself with with the former sort of party that it once was you know I think that that analogy of a once great football club is quite a good one for Scottish Labour I think there is a sort of resentment and a confusion about the fact that the party isn't isn't what it once was doesn't occupy the same position in Scottish politics that it did not so long ago but also a comparison with its Westminster counterparts as well and this has been a problem that has dogged Scottish Labour and its relationship with this with the Labour Party in Westminster for a long time. You know, you probably, you know, remember covering when Joanne Lamont resigned, accusing the, the sort of UK wide Labour Party of treating Scotland like a branch office. And that criticism, that that phrase has never really gone away. And I think that's that's true of this sort of discontent with Richard Leonard's leadership, partially. You know, I, I do think that he's made mistakes as well. But I do think there's this idea that Scottish Labour should be doing as well as the UK wide party. And because it's so, you know, because it occupies a poor place in the opinion polls in Scotland, that gives it a... Um, an unflattering comparison with the place that the main party is in the polls. But again, the problem with looking at it in that way and suggesting that we need it, that it needs a change of leadership, a bit like the central Labour Party has had to try and improve its prospects, completely ignores the the unique problems that the Labour Party has in Scotland. And like you say, those unique problems are partly down to the Labour Party for years sort of being complacent about their dominance in Scotland, but it's also, like you say, down to the Conservative Party and the SNP in Scotland and what they're doing. So I do think that that tendency to compare the Scottish Labour Party with its UK-wide counterparts is, is, is still a problem. That branch office mentality is still a problem. And, you know, you can look at what happened in the general election We've had that kind of Scott Pocalypse result before, and the Labour Party, both centrally and I think in Scotland, have not learned from that. And I think that this sort of dissent and 
uh, and discontent with Richard Leonard and the way it's being expressed is is another example of that. And I, I do think that a Labour Party that was sort of elected or a Labour leader that was elected for Labour to unite in the main leadership election for Keir Starmer's leadership campaign, that completely jars with with the kind of dissent that we're seeing in Scotland now, as if the party, you know, should try and get itself its own Keir Starmer and get itself a polling position on a par with Keir Starmer, which I think is is a flawed way of looking at, at the party's position in Scotland. I think the underrated and, and sort of, I think, poorly understood truth about Scottish politics at the moment is the success, and I've done air quotes there for the benefit, I would rather say for the benefit of our listeners, but obviously for the benefit of the two of you, because we're not in the same <laughs> building, of the Scottish Conservatives is that they successfully kind of, under Ruth Davison, went, we're the biggest, baddest unionist party, and voting for us will send a strong message that you don't want a, a referendum. The problem is that, one, it kind of creates this situation where if you are the Scottish Labour Party, right, you can't plausibly dominate the, like, centre-left pro-independence, though, because there's, like, a party which does those things and is in government. It essentially is the kind of... It is the structural problem of being a new entrant, and just because they're a new entrant with the name of a dominant party doesn't change the fact that they have those same hurdles. But as we can see, right, there is a, a, a hard ceiling... The problem for the, the Scottish Conservative electoral strategy is it's a great way to get second place. It's a great way to minimise and limit the ability of the parties behind you to overhaul you, but you can't get first from it, right? Because what is the message to SNP Conservative switchers? Well, it's to have an argument about not just why a referendum is wrong, but why independence is wrong. What is the best venue to make the case that independence is wrong? It's to have an independence referendum. But you can't have that because your electoral success is built around going no, no, no independence referendum. And we see this actually with what was the thing which allowed Ruth Davison to break out of the kind of like, oh, they're a bit nice, aren't they, the Scottish Conservatives? That kind of like condescended curios sort of zone that Annabelle Gouldy sort of had them in, right, where, you know, occasionally like on a quiet day, a newspaper would do like a, you know, kind of a leader being like, you know, isn't Annabelle Gouldy a a nice, a nice, hardworking loser? You know, she plugs away <laughs> in third place. Right? What what allowed Ruth Davison to break out of that mould wasn't wasn't that Ruth Davison is particularly brilliant or a good communicator, although I do think she's a good communicator. It was the the circumstances of the referendum give the third party a prominence they otherwise don't have, right? It allows them to like introduce themselves to the public. So I guess this actually is where like and this to me is actually the correct case against Richard Leonard, which is if there is a situation where there is another referendum, is Richard Leonard the politician and the Scottish Labour Party wants to have their hands at the wheel when they when the kind of usual third party problems will be suspended? Palpably not. I just think realistically, right, the the, the Labour Party needs to look at both at where it has succeeded in slightly containing its nationalist rival, i.e. Wales, but also it needs to look at Canada. And what was the secret of success then? It is to have a leader who himself was visibly of Quebec. Now, of course, this is Labour's other structural problem, which is, and indeed this is the structural problem for unionists in general, is that it seems to me that the number one most effective weapon against the SNP is to have a Scottish Prime Minister in Westminster. I would invite anyone who thinks that's plausible to think back to the Conservatives' 2015 general election campaign. 
And I think if, if people think that, you know, I think Annalise Dodd's Scottishness is probably going to be weaponized in some Facebook adverts in 2024. I just think it's likely, right? And I think also an underrated pressure point on the union is that England has has signaled visibly in several elections that it does not want to be run by Scotland in inverted commas, right? Just as it like is a pressure point on the union between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and like the DUP rocked up and a large chunk of people went, why do those people get to be involved in the running of this country? They're not really British. But I think all of those kind of structural forces just mean it's really hard to see how you can increase like broadly, they they need they need there to be more left wing unionists than there are, which means they need to find a way of increasing the number of people who think who are either left wing or you yeah you know, they need to increase the size of that bit of the Venn diagram. But you can't do that from third place. Anyone who who thinks that they can, I would invite them to tell me without googling what the question <laughs> that Ian Blackford has asked in the last four PMQs, and the fact they can't answer illustrates it sucks being the third party. It's like it's fundamentally why they, yeah, that they needed to fight a better 2016 campaign than they did, and it's why they needed to make a number of better decisions in the 90s and noughties. But you know they can't unring that bell. That's so interesting. Are you, are you, so are you sort of saying that because of that position of a third party, there's a limited pool of talent that you can draw from to improve the leadership of the party once it comes to a referendum campaign, and that person's going to get more airtime. Yeah, I think it's the thing is that like. One of the like more tedious bits of journalism and indeed punditry that happens whenever, and you, you can see this, you know, 2001, 2005, 2010, 2015, 2017, actually to a lesser extent in 2019, because there were so many unexpected winners that like a lot of the conservative intake has, I think, actually slightly unfairly been tarred as all being landfill. But like people always go like, oh, isn't the winning side, aren't their MPs a lot more impressive? It's just like, actually, the crucial word there is a lot more. Mm. Like mm. in 2015, right, the Conservatives gained 50 new MPs in Lib Dem territory, plus they had a host of retirements. The Labour Party gained like eight seats, plus they had some retirements and they lost 40 Scottish MPs, including some people who were retiring, who, you know, people who, you know, would have been quite you know, good and interesting in retirement seats who were selected in 2014, would have plausibly thought they were going to be the MP and, and obviously were not the MP. And so that's the other thing. Once you, once you are the third party, and you see this with the, the Dems, right? Like, once you are choosing from a pool of people of 12, and obviously you can engage in, you know, like slightly strange fantasies like the Lib Dems of being like, oh, maybe our leader can be outside Parliament and go, oh, what we'll do is we'll, we'll surrender our, our one arena to get news, which is being in the chamber. This is one of the weird problems of having a pure parliamentary system is that once you lose, you it becomes self-fulfilling, right? Your talent pool is smaller, so you keep losing, so you're selecting from a smaller pool. The only people you're selecting from are people who who have a, like, the thing which makes all Labour MPs weird is they are, from places which elected a Labour MP, a minority habit, to put it mildly, in the 2019 election. And all of that is, like, multiplied when you are the third-placed party. And if you don't have, like, a list system, if we had PR, right, we would have like a couple of late Labour MPs would still be being elected out of like seats that went Conservative in 2019. You'd have a couple of Labour MPs elected from bits of the South West, right? And so all of that slightly increases your breadth. We see this with Ruth Davison. How did she come in through the party list? And the big challenge for the Scottish Labour Party, I think, in the next election is not like, can they 
get out of their third place position. It's have they got talent coming in, in through the list? I doubt it, not least because like in terms of the people who would produce that talent, those people are mostly in the SNP, right? Their position is really bad. I think that's what concerned me or, or would concern me if I were in the Labour Party, actually north or, or south of the border, about the Richard Leonard story, is that there is there is a real whiff of why can't we just go back to what it was like before about the sort of simplicity of simply changing a leader as well. So I think in 2014, the, the independence referendum result, there was this sort of, among some Labour MPs, complacency thinking, oh, okay, everything's going to go back to normal, everything's okay, you know, we the, the referendum went our way, that's fine. And then, of course, you saw what happened in the general election in 2015. And I think, you know, unless there's a sort of change in attitude towards that kind of feeling, which again is 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 treating Scotland like a branch office, then I think that, that then, then it's a sort of vicious cycle, isn't it? Labour's hopes in Scotland diminish. Yeah, and I think I think one of the, the weird problems they have is that they both treat it like a branch office, but also kind of like a sort of weird, scary black box. In then for a long time in Labour politics, right, there was this kind of thing of like, you know, of the Scottish MPs basically being like, you know, look, you don't understand this stuff. We understand how to fight the SNP. We understand how to win an independence referendum. So why don't you keep your sweet southern little beaks out of it? Mm-mm. And now, of course, sorry. Okay, there are now there are still some Labour MPs who are Scottish, just as as well as the seven Conservative MPs who sit for Scottish seats. There are Scottish Conservatives, you know, like Michael Gove, like Liam Fox, who who represent seats in England. But there's kind of a nervousness in the rest of the Labour Party in kind of actually opining about what they could do differently, right? And so it means that the one lever that people in the Labour Party outside Scotland feel comfortable suggesting be pulled is to change the person at the top. Mm-hmm. They don't feel fluent in like what's devolved, what's not devolved. They don't feel fluent in, you know, like what about your wider political strategy? But they do have this kind of branch head like, just get me a new waiter. Oh, no, this 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 wine isn't good. Get rid of Keds. Oh, I don't like this. Get rid of Richard. Right. That's 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 the one lever that the Labour Party in England can understand relative mm-hmm. to 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 Scotland. I guess essentially this is just like one of the saying, like, in many ways, their their political debate is a bit like like having like a fierce argument about how to like not die when you've like fallen out of the plane. It's just like you just needed not to fall out of the plane, guys. Like, but Albert, I, I'm really interested in your kind of like because obviously you're from a part of the United Kingdom where there are multiple parties, and I think including, of course, multiple parties on the same axis than the Scottish. Yeah, the problem the Scottish Labour Party has, and like there's a left-right axis and a constitutional axis. And and I'm just really interested if you think that this take is bonkers, but it feels to me that their structural problem is that like just as like the UUP are not pl- they can't sort of plausibly turn around and go, actually maybe we don't care all that much about the union. And whenever they've done they've tried to do that, like the STLP UUP kind of will second preference each other thing didn't really work. Was it the 2017 executive elections? Didn't really work, wasn't really bought. But equally, there just aren't enough like progressive unionists floating around for them to like get anything but a good third or fourth place. Is that impression just bonkers? Or or do you think then like there is a kind of like Northern Irish lesson for the Scottish Labour Party? Oh, that's such a good question. The question kind of makes my brain hurt actually trying to map the two onto each other. I mean, I think there probably are lessons to be learned from the situation of the different parties 
in Northern Ireland, but maybe in a quite complex way. I mean, the UUP, I mean, they're not doing very well and they've been completely eclipsed by the DUP, but I suppose there are lessons from, I mean, I think it's maybe actually the other way around in that the the SNP model slightly mirrors the Shane Fein model, even though they don't necessarily speak to each other publicly and people don't think of them in the same way. But I think the way that the SNP and Sinn Féin, particularly in, in like Southern Irish elections, have been both quite successful in drawing in other progressive voters and signalling their wider sort of woke or progressive credentials to people who don't feel very strongly on constitutional matters. I think that has been a strength of, of both of them as a way of drawing votes away from other progressive or left-wing parties, but I don't know how it works in reverse. But I think it's interesting with, I mean, the, the way that this doesn't apply to Northern Ireland, but it very much does in Scotland, is is how this affects Keir Starmer and his leadership. With the Richard Leonard story over the past few days, Labour officially has been quite clear that this is just a matter for Scottish Labour and Keir Starmer is not getting involved. But then Rachel Reeves, who's Michael Gove's sort of shadow um, in the shadow cabinet, has said that Richard Leonard should consider his position. That hasn't really been the party line up until now and it's not really clear whether she's kind of freelancing or not or whether other people will start to fall into line behind her. But I think that it goes without saying that Labour desperately needs more Westminster seats in Scotland if it's to have any hope of a majority at the next election. I'm not getting much of a sense from the Labour Party as a whole of what their Scotland strategy is or like the the vague outline of it isn't particularly forceful. You know, the idea of, you know, of I think, as you say, Stephen, there's a lack of confidence there around what's devolved and what isn't, how much the central party in Westminster should butt in or not. Annalisa Dodds was in Scotland quite recently and she's been talking a little bit more about Scottish independence and Labour in Scotland and they're maybe sort of lining her up to take more of a leadership role north of the border. That is still the kind of big question mark, isn't it, around it, which it does kind of feel like their strategy is basically step one, win back some seats in England, step two, question mark, step three, Scottish revival. And... (laughs) That step two feels like something of a problem. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
Now it's time for a section we like to call... You You Ask ask us. Us. So this is a question from Thomas, who says... Hi team, I've been hearing a lot about conservative backbenchers complaining regarding U-turns, budget proposals and polls. Is this making or is it going to make much of a difference? And how much more complex is the reality than all backbenchers agree and aren't happy with the number 10 approach? So I thought this was um, a really good question because I think that the the issue of the FIBRA mood on the Tory backbenches and the, the different shades of opinion within that and where they are is really going to shape the next few months between now and Christmas where we have the end of the furlough scheme and the budget coming up but also just you know in general we have the triple challenges of coronavirus and the economic crisis and Brexit so I'll put it to maybe Anush first but I mean I suppose my impression of this is that from speaking to conservative MPs what what is maybe missing from the broader discourse about, you know, Tory MPs are very upset about U-turns is the fact that the thing that they all have in common is that they are all annoyed about the political capital that they have had to expend in recent months in defending government decisions that have been really unpopular, like the Dominic Cummings affair. And then in other cases, they've been defending unpopular decisions to their constituents, and then the government has U-turned on them and they have they've kind of felt out of the loop and unsupported and they feel like the government has put them in a difficult position but also crucially looking forward it means they have much less confidence that when the government initially commits to something they they're actually going to follow through on it but where they where they don't all agree beyond that general dissatisfaction is that the 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 angle at which they are coming with these new questions so I think the big thing that we're actually going to see in October is a big Tory row over planning reforms this is why this is such a good question because Conservative MPs aren't all annoyed in the same way and the question is whether different group different parts of the parliamentary party are going to be united in disagreement with a particular policy sufficient to have a, a, a significant rebellion or to you know result in a parliamentary defeat for the government. There are plenty of Tories from the Shires who have a kind of what their colleagues would call an NIMBY-ish perspective that basically they this new algorithm for planning reforms is going to see a target for, for building new homes set centrally by government and it's going to disproportionately affect conservative seats. Lots of conservatives don't want to see that happen. They think that it will fundamentally change the character of their constituencies. They don't want to see tar blocks in their constituencies. That's going to be really unpopular. The government has always known that that was going to be unpopular and was always going to need to use a lot of political capital to push that through. But I think that then where it gets tricky is that there are also, they have colleagues who would be quite dismissive of, of a NIMBY-ish approach who also have loads of concerns over these planning reforms because I think they worry that they will diminish certain standards around high quality housing and will produce sort of slum properties and, and they, they sort of worry about the, the social costs down the line of providing people with low quality housing. And so it's whether those different groups unite against these policies and there, there are obviously other big questions coming about the economy with also conservative MPs coming from different perspectives but you know the government has already asked its MPs to expend a lot of political capital defending things that its backbenchers aren't necessarily comfortable with 
whether different groups are all annoyed at the same point sufficient to have a rebellion. But Anush, same question to you, I suppose. Is all this discontent from the Conservative backbenches going to make much of a difference in the next few months and or is it more complex than people are saying? Well I think you were spot on when you said that different Conservative MPs are unhappy about different things. So on the face of it that's placed the, to the government's strengths because its opposition is divided. So you will get MPs who don't like the U-turns because they don't like the position that the government U-turns to. So you have someone like you know the old veteran backbencher Edward Lee saying, you know, we have to stop saying that Whitehall knows best and, and you know, bring back a proper conservative values in trusting the individual and that kind of thing. But then you also get the MPs who were warning about the exam results long before the fiasco and who, you know, would rather that the government hadn't had to U-turn and had just had landed on the correct or least chaotic policy solution in the first place. So you do have like you say, with the planning row, you do have MPs coming at the government's policy choices from different perspectives, which suggests that the opposition isn't united. However, the opposition to Theresa May's version of Brexit, for example, wasn't united in the Tory party, yet it resulted in a lot of defeats for the government. So I do think that Conservative MPs at the moment are probably discontent enough to be able to organise to oppose the government when they don't like what, what what they're doing or how they're approaching a certain issue, no matter sort of how different the outcomes that they want from, from the policy they want to be. So, you know, you, you've sort of seen, a, in a way, an, an organised sort of response as MPs, as Tory MPs have returned to Westminster in criticising the government for its U-turns, for example. So there's a suggestion that they can all speak with one voice if they're unhappy enough with the way they're being led. And I think one of the most important things is that is the treatment of MPs, which we've spoken about before on this podcast, which is, you know, if you're being asked to go and defend something for a week, which is, you know, turning out while you're on the airwaves to sound, you know, utterly ridiculous and an inefficient, wrong-headed way of doing things, and then the government changes it its mind the next week, then you look stupid and you feel stupid and you don't feel loved or cared about or consulted by your leadership. So I do think that some of the discontent is actually regardless of of ideology, of whether you think you agree with the with the sort of pattern of the response to, to coronavirus, for example, or not. It's more the way that you've been treated by this leadership. And that's why I think, you know, if there are rebellions that end up in government defeats or could or have the potential to, then it will impact the way that the government operates. But, you know, without sort of an ideological opposition that's big enough to change the government's course, then I think it will stick to its what it, you know, what it always wants to try and stick to, which is what's the public opinion on this? What's the popular position? Yeah, I think that's exactly it, right? And then the important thing is that what Conservative MPs essentially agree on is that they are concerned about the government's direction. But I realize I have to caveat that immediately they're saying, or lack thereof, right? Because you have some people who basically, like, you know, who will say, you know, that the problem is these people aren't conservatives. We did this deal to stop Corbyn and get Brexit. And now, you know, we have like a bunch of like lefty ideas about how to run the economy. The government can't level up places that are the losers out of globalization. We're not getting the Brexit we wanted. The government is too timid to strike a US trade deal. Yeah, well, the government's too left wing to. And then you essentially have kind of people like this government has no ideology, ideology, it has no principles beyond 
find out what the majority of the population thinks on any given issue and tell them it will give it them can't follow anything through yeah there's a conservative mp who likes to basically will and they they also send me a number of really useful things but one of the things they'll kind of repeatedly do is basically go like oh i see that this government's thing now is and then you know like some weeks it's like you know oh they were gonna do you remember when they remember when dom cummings was going to sort out defense procurement that was a fun week mm-hmm. <laughs> and like and now like a hard rain is coming for the civil service and like you know this kind of like the way they put it is they were just like we're led by a bad diy expert you know just like they rip out a wall they go oh it's a bit difficult isn't it and then they just kind of leave the ripped out wall and like oh maybe i'll rip out the sink next week and obviously right the thing that like broadly if, if i were to do a kind of like what what is bothering both those groups of mps well they're being bothered by the same thing a lack of direction but it is a fundamentally different complaint, as you say, Anoush, to be like, I'm worried about your direction, I'm worried about your lack of direction. And then, of course, you have the people who feel they've been treated badly, you know, people who've been sacked in a way where, like, obviously, you have to sack people when you want to bring in new people. The government has been very bad at, like, doing it in a kind of, you're over, you're done, you're finished. What are you going to do if we say we're finished? Vote against us every week in the House of... Oh, wait. Like, <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> And I guess where, where I think all of this is a problem, right? And so, you know, yesterday, Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson addressed the 29 intake, basically, you know, giving speeches where they went, things are going to get really bad, things are going to be really unpopular, but don't worry, we have a plan. The problem is, isn't because they've U-turned so often, right? Like, let's, I mean, not even let's say, there will be unpopular tax rises and unpopular cuts in Rishi Sunak's budget. Imagine you were a Tory MP. For those of you who are, this is an easier question for you. You know, like, are you actually going to be like, after you defended them on Marcus Rashford and they U-turned, after you said, look, I can't go out, like, and defend the Cummings thing because my constituents are furious and they shouted at you and told you and they were over, are you really going to go on air and be like, why, yes, this tax rise, I love it? Of course not. (laughs) Is it because you're not a moron? And I think that's why it matters, right? The question is, right, is that what we don't know and, and kind of the, like, long-term experiment that this parliament is, right, is, is like, can you be re-elected at a national level if you, like, continually kind of, like, posture towards being disruptors and then you turn towards whatever the public comfort is? You can do that in a devolved institution like London City Hall because broadly all of the painful levers aren't in the hand of the mayor of London. It's less clear if you can do it. And I guess like the reason why why I think it will matter and the reason why, you know, I, I, I do kind of agree with, I think, the minority of Conservative MPs and the majority of Labour MPs who think that a different Conservative will lead them into the next election is I just think like in some ways you're always worse off when people can broadly go like, well, anyone would be better. You know, there is in the country, but there isn't anywhere in the Conservative Party a sort of large stop Michael, stop Rishi, stop Pretty, stop Jeremy Hunt, stop stop Saj kind of movement, right? Which I think kind of means that, like, if the one thing the Parliamentary Party can increasingly agree on is the direction is bad or non-existent, but no one is lying awake at night going, oh, God, what if we roll the dice and we end up with someone terrible? That just means that at some point the dice gets rolled, assuming that as I think most MPs, it's fair to say, of all parties do assume that this incompetence does eventually like make itself felt on the poll share i don't know about you but it feels a lot like covering politics under ed when you'd like the polls are fine but in both parties everyone be like yeah but come on they won't be will they 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think like, there, <laughs> there is a real similarity there. Happy days. It might, yeah, it, it might not, it might not play out that way. But I think the reason why I and a lot of other commentators keep comparing Keir Starmer to David Cameron is how much he just feels like that. Like that is the mood music around everyone, right? Like, you know, a couple of like ultra partisans will like write pieces going, "Oh, it's going great," or you know, like the meaning of X. You know, you know, he's winning the big argument. But you just talk to the average MP and they're just like, but I just think that poll's going to change. Mm. <laughs> and so the local elections could completely change the mood music, but they could also basically be the moment when the country turns around to Tory MPs and goes, your fears are true. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, my colleagues Stephen Bush and Anusha Kalyan. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.